There's very little better than waking up in the morning to a truly fantastic cup of coffee. And if you're like me, you're looking for something that tastes fresh and isn't weak or overproduced. That's why I've switched to Four Sigmatic and I won't go back. Four Sigmatic mixes their beans with mushrooms to give your brain that jumpstart you didn't know you needed. So go to the link in my show notes or on my podcast page and use the code CHOOSEYOURSTRUGGLE at checkout for 10% off. You can sign up for one of their awesome subscriptions or just try buying a bag. And with their 100% money back guarantee, there's no downside. So check them out today and don't forget the code CHOOSEYOURSTRUGGLE. I'm going to just go ahead and invite uh, Jay Schiffman up to share his story. So let's give it up for Jay. Welcome to the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am your host, Jay Schiffman. Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. I am back in my recording booth and it's, uh, you know, I don't love the South, y'all. <laughs> y'all know how I feel, but it is—it is good to be back in a space that I'm comfortable recording in. That's—that's that's great. I hope you enjoyed last week's episode. Got some good feedback on that. I enjoyed it a lot. Like I went back and listened, uh, as I always do after a couple days. I'm like, yeah, this is this is a really good episode. I really enjoy this. Thank you to those who reached out. As always, really appreciate hearing from you. Thank you to those who filled out the podcast survey. I got word that one of you used uh, the discount code on Pair of Thieves. That's awesome. Thank you for that. I really like my sponsors. I wouldn't be talking about them if I don't. I'm very particular about who I choose to be a sponsor. So if you hear me talking about somebody on this podcast, a sponsor, or even just mentioning something, I'm not doing it for the money because the money's but he's not that great. I'm doing it because I actually like that product and it's cool that they pay me. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to talk about something very briefly. I'm recording this on Wednesday, September 30th. Um, last night was the first debate. I did not watch the debate. Quite frankly, I just don't see why. We know both are going to just tell a bunch of lies. We know you know, by this point, you probably know who you're voting for. And from what I read, it turns out it's a good thing I didn't watch. You know, it was just as much of a shit show. I, one review said, that is 90 minutes we won't ever get back. And if you're not embarrassed to be an American, I don't know what to tell you. I think I made the right choice. Very quickly, I do want to say I was incredibly dismayed to wake up this morning to see posts from people that I like, posts from people that I respect with some really harmful things about substance misuse, about drug use, a lot of political posturing about these issues. And so very quickly, I want to say that that's incredibly hurtful to me. If you're a friend of mine, and you're hearing this, um, or if you're someone who, you know, I know in real life, or if you're someone who's just very active in the political social media, and you've done that, know that those of us in this community see that and it's very hurtful. Was what Trump said about Hunter Biden completely inexcusable? Of course it was. To be fair, that is our country's attitude towards drugs and substance misuse in a nutshell. Like I said, I didn't watch it. I went back to find that because I saw so many people talking about it in hurtful ways. And it was, you know, it wasn't surprising to me. Like, this is what I see all the time. And quite frankly, a lot of that is Joe Biden's fault. He helped solidify the horrible stance in this country on those issues in the 80s and 90s, and he failed to do anything about it while serving as the second most powerful person in America as Barack Obama's vice president. Both parties are complicit in the deaths of millions of Americans that are preventable. Both parties have failed to do anything on the issues of substance misuse, on ending the war on drugs, on reforming how we think about drug use. It's completely ignorant to applaud one party over another on these issues. If you are doing that, you're part of the problem. You heard that with Kellen a couple weeks ago, where he talked about how, yeah, both parties suck on this, Democrats a little bit less, but we shouldn't be rewarding someone for being negative 15 just because the other party is negative 20. That's not okay. You're going to hear a little more about that today from John Hudek, who is our guest. 
John is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, which is an organization that I really respect. I've been there in person, kind of nerded out when I went there because I'm such a big fan of their work. John is the author of Marijuana, a short history. It's a really great book on how our country has approached not just marijuana and cannabis research, and he talks about the difference between those two words in this interview, but also drugs at all. He's a very knowledgeable guy. We had an incredible, deep, historical context uh, conversation. And, uh, you know, we, we both had a lot of fun. In fact, when, when I turned off the interview, he was like, wow, that was, a, that was a good time. Like, you know, he was into it. I was into it. We had a great conversation. The shout out is from a woman named S. Lou. S. is the host of the Bad Body, Bad Skin podcast, where she is uh, very open and honest about her struggles with uh, self-esteem, self-image. You know, I really appreciate anyone who does that, quite frankly, and I really like her work. So you'll enjoy that as well. Couple notes on the interview, real quick, with John. Zoom wasn't so kind to us during this interview. It's not terrible. I just want to say I know it. You may notice it. It was just, you know, that's just how Zoom is sometimes. Uh, and we recorded this during the fight for the COVID relief bill that obviously didn't come to pass. That context is needed a little bit during some of our our chat, but you'll you'll understand that when you hear it. Also, we went for over an hour. Um, and as you know, I can't, I can't put out, you know, an hour and a half podcast. So I cut out a middle section where we talk about ha uh, Harry Anslinger, who you've heard me talk about a lot with um, Kellen, especially. We talked about LaGuardia again, someone I talked about with Kellen. So I felt safe cutting those two out because John gives more info about other people I thought was incredibly important. That being said, I wanted to say this because I believe everybody should be educating themselves both on Harry Anslinger and his deplorable work and also the LaGuardia report that, that you know, Kellen and I talked about. Those are both very important topics. I didn't cut them because I didn't think they were. I cut them for time and because other information needed to be, needed to be shared. So enjoy this. If you like John, go buy his book. I really loved it. I've already passed it on. And, and, and I really think you should read it, but I want to hear from you. That's, that's it. You know, I want to hear from you. Tell me what you like, what you don't like as always take the podcast survey, check out the sponsors, all of it's in the show notes, all of it's on my website, jshiffman.com. All right. Without further ado, enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, it's us and I run the Bad Body, Bad Skin podcast. I help women become more confident in their skin and just basically encourage them to just accept who they really are. I myself have struggled with plenty of self-esteem issues and it had prevented me from going out and doing the things that I love. So I encourage women to get out, get out there and just be who you truly are. Bad body, bad skin all began when I developed my dermal melasma skin issue when I was 15. It was my biggest insecurity and I always felt like I wasn't up on the beauty standards. My beauty standards were very low. So going forth, I just kind of hid myself and was just completely discouraged throughout life up until I started to podcast and speak about my issue and realized that there were a lot of women out there who had skin insecurities and wanted to do other things, but didn't feel like they were pretty enough. So I decided to speak more about it. And then I gained confidence by speaking about my issues. And I wanted to give others a platform to speak about theirs too. I've been podcasting for almost uh, two years now. What I've learned about my beauty transformation was that you could fix all the issues you have with your skin and still be very insecure. I had I corrected my skin issue for the most part, but my insecurity still lied within. So I had to dig deep to develop self-improvement skills and confidence skills within myself to actually believe that I was worth it. So ultimately my goal is to teach women to look at themselves in the mirror and to accept that beauty that they're looking at and to know that what they're looking at superficially, it, it doesn't matter. What matters is what you give out unto the world. And if you give out positive, beautiful energy, that's exactly what's going to come back to you. 
So I have a few places that I want people to follow me on. Of course, I want everyone to go ahead and listen to the Bad Body, Bad Skin podcast. We talk about confidence, beauty, wellness, uh, self-improvement, and everything under that umbrella. You could also follow me on Instagram at Bad Body, Bad Skin. And I also have a new thing that I started, which is helping podcasters with motivation, tips, memes, all of that. And you could follow Bad Pod. It's spelled B-A-D-D-P-O-D-D. And that's just a fun thing that I started just for podcasters because we're cool. So it looks like we're going to be hanging out inside for at least a little while longer. And with the colder months coming up fast, there's never been a more perfect time to stock up on all your comfy clothes. Lucky for you, you listen to the Choose Your Struggle podcast, and I have a sweet deal for you today. Check out my sponsor, Pair of Thieves. They've got everything you need, from shorts to lounge pants to underwear and bras. They even have a line of Disney socks with all your favorite characters on it. But here's the best part. If you use the link in the show notes or on my podcast website and the discount code Rakuten Thieves, don't worry, that's in the show notes too, you'll get 20% off every full price item in your shopping cart. So stock up on all your comfy clothes today and help out the podcast in the process. So what got me into cannabis research is sort of accidental, to be honest. Um, I do research in a variety of areas. My training uh, tends to uh, be focused on the American presidency and a lot of the boring stuff around bureaucracy. So regulation, taxation, and uh, bureaucratic organization, all of the stuff that'll put you to sleep if you have insomnia. And I had a colleague uh, a bunch of years ago come down to my office and uh, say, you know, have you ever thought about studying cannabis? And I said, no, not, not even a little bit. And he <laughs> said, well, listen, there's uh, Colorado and Washington in a few months are going to be voting on these ballot referenda on legalizing cannabis. And I don't think either one is going to pass. He said, but if one, if one happens to pass, these states are going to be asking a lot of questions in the areas that you're asking questions just not related to cannabis, regulation, organization, those sorts of things. He said, and uh, I think it might be something that'll interest you. And I said, okay, uh, thanks. Uh, I will look into it and just pretty much blew it off. Uh, but my colleague also named John, uh, he is an insistent human. And so he was constantly sending me links to news articles and stuff um, related to these ballot initiatives. And I said, okay, I'm going to read a couple of these articles. I'll go up, have a conversation with John and explain to him that I'm not interested. And so I started reading and I was like, oh, actually, he's on to something. There's something pretty interesting here um, about this. And so I started to look into it, uh, started to do research on the types of things that are very much fully in my wheelhouse. And uh, the first project I worked on sort of assessed how Colorado implemented Amendment 64. And then it just sort of um, blew up. Uh, what I like to say is cannabis research uh, became really addicting. And I started looking at the issue from a bunch of different angles, um, not just state-based, but national, international, uh, medical, rec, and uh, it developed into what's now probably half of my research portfolio at Brookings. You seem to have gotten in like at the perfect time. Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, it, it was a little bit of luck. It was, a, a, it was really good timing. Uh, what I often tell people is uh, my work, especially early on, attracted a lot of attention. And it wasn't because I was the smartest guy in the room. It wasn't because I was saying the, the best things in the room. It was literally that think tanks were not doing work in this space. And so I was the only one in the room. I was the only one from a think tank uh, with a couple of exceptions. Rand was doing work on this, but from a different angle, not from a real political science, public administration angle. Um, Cato was doing work on this, but more from a free market perspective. Um, but other than that, the big name think tanks that usually do work on policy implementation um, uh, in politics really just saw this still as a fringe uh, issue. And so when I go back and look at my early work, you know, I think 
wow, Jesus, what the hell was I thinking um, with some of that stuff? And it's certainly matured since. But, uh, but yeah, it, it ended up being a really good opening. And now it's something that uh, my colleagues at Brookings and, and colleagues at other think tanks, this is an issue that's hot for them. This is stuff they, they want to connect the work that they do whether it's around tax policy or finance or racial equality um, or a variety of environmental issues, et cetera, they want to connect it to cannabis because they see this now as real public policy. Whereas, you know, seven or eight years ago when I started doing work in this area, this was not real public policy to, to people in the ivory tower. This was fringe stuff that the young bearded guy at Brookings was doing. And it wasn't the kind of thing that they saw as legitimate. And, and, you know, I would love for you to talk a little bit about how much you think that being at Brookings was what gave, you know, gave this opportunity. Brookings is you know, typically described as the center left. They are, they are one of, if not the most um, center. I, I mean, they, they, they truly are well-respected for, for being sort of um, a leading thinker without being, uh, you know, overly political or, or, or aligned in, in, in one side or the other. Um, and, and a lot of incredible voices have come out of Brookings. Is, is that a big part of why you think you were able to get this opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. I think that having um, a platform at Brookings and having that name recognition that the institution has was a huge part of um, getting things started. When when scholars at Brookings speak, a lot of people listen, and that's true on an issue that uh, is sort of constantly in, in the news or has been an issue for decades, but it, it also is true for new issues that are popping up. And, and by new issues, I don't necessarily mean that cannabis is a new issue, but um, when Brookings starts talking about something, people who wouldn't normally listen start to listen. And so, like I said, it's not, um, it wasn't uh, a matter of just, um, uh, no, it wasn't a matter at all of me being brilliant. It was a matter of me talking about something in an informed way and coming from it, uh, it coming from a, a newer institution and talking about it. And so what I get a lot is that, uh, you know, people say, well, we want to hear the perspective, your perspective, because Brookings is respected. And we don't want an industry voice, another industry voice on this. We don't want another um, you know, advocacy organization voice on this. And so for your listeners, um, Brookings is a 501c3. We are a pure nonprofit. We engage in no political activity whatsoever. We don't endorse candidates. We don't endorse legislation. We don't do any lobbying. Uh, and so when you are getting information from organizations that are doing that lobbying, that are endorsing candidates, you know, a, a lot of that information is good and valid and well-researched. Um, but there's always skepticism about whether there's a bias there. And certainly I think people should be skeptical of anyone's bias, whether they're in a think tank, whether they're in an advocacy organization, whether they're a politician. Um, but knowing that we don't necessarily or at all have a horse in the race, um, I think lends itself to uh, people being more willing uh, at least to be introduced to the issue um, in a way that maybe they wouldn't have. I love you put that such a, in such a, a beautiful way. And, and I was introduced to Brookings when I used to work in politics and, um, you know, was very invested in sort of uh, making sure that I understood a lot of these issues from a nonpartisan way, hence why I love Brookings so much. And then, and once I got out of politics, making sure I was staying up to date, but like you so perfectly said, not reading another lobbyist or another mouthpiece for, for a candidate or whoever, because at the end of the day, you're not really going to learn a whole lot reading or listening to them. You'll hear what the candidate or, or the organization or whatever wants you to think, but the, the, the true reality needs to come from someone outside who is doing an honest assessment. And I honestly believe that there, are, I, I can't name an organization doing that better than Brookings is. Yeah. You know, one of the things I, I, I say is, uh, you know, we're doing it right at Brookings when in one article will be called center right, another article will be called center left. Sometimes we're the liberal Brookings institution, sometimes we're the conservative Brookings institution. Depending on who's writing on what topic, um, it, that description is all over the place. But one of the nice things about cannabis is because it is a bipartisan issue, you know, we have 
uh, probably as many Republican readers as we have Democratic readers of our, our cannabis content. Uh, and when it comes to, you know, phone calls from uh, Hill offices, uh, phone calls from governor's offices, things like that, uh, sometimes it's a Democrat on the other end of the line, sometimes it's a Republican. And so that makes it easier um, to say, listen, we're just putting the information out there. Uh, we're, not, we're not bringing some political bias to it. And, and I really appreciate that you said this is a bipartisan issue. And I want to say that it's not a bipartisan issue because both sides equally, you know, support it in the same ways or don't support it for the same reasons. It seems to be sort of there's a solid section of both parties that support this issue. And then there are groups from both who don't for very different, for very different reasons. Yeah, I mean, what we know is that uh, more Democrats than Republicans support full-scale cannabis reform. When it comes to medical cannabis, the parties are really indistinguishable. Um, but yeah, more Democrats support it than Republicans, but it's not, you know, 70% of Democrats and 20% of Republicans. We're talking about 70% of Democrats and about 50 to 55% of Republicans. There aren't many issues in American politics these days that have that kind of support. Usually it is, well, a lot of Democrats like that issue, so we as Republicans can't, or a lot of Republicans like that issue, so we as Democrats can't. This is an area where um, those, those lines blur, and when you look at the people who are working together, sometimes because of the same reasons, sometimes, as you said, for very different reasons, there isn't much in the United States Senate that Cory Booker and Rand Paul agree on. <laughs> um, there isn't much um, that, that Kamala Harris and uh, you know, Matt Gates um, uh, agree on. But this is one of those issues. And they come at it for different reasons. Sometimes the, in, in Rand Paul and Cory Booker's case, they actually come at it for the same reasons, a, a criminal justice issue, um, among other things. And uh, yeah, it's, it's in some ways a breath of fresh air to be dealing with this issue uh, in American politics, because while there are ardent opponents of cannabis legalization, they are not the types of uh, voices that we see in other areas of politics. It's a small minority of people who are hyper vocal, um, but for, for mo the most part, the people who disagree with cannabis reform are not out there saying like, this is going to ruin America. This is the end of society. Um, it's people who are like, yeah, I don't like it. And that's pretty much it. Uh, and, and so, like I said, it's nice to be working in that space. I mean, I do research on presidential power. I do research on immigration policy. Um, these are things that are extraordinarily heated. And I, I'm not afforded that same sort of zone of bipartisanship uh, on, on those issues. And, and so, yeah, for, for I think American politics and certainly for me, it makes it a much, uh, it's a room with much cooler heads. I think it, it, it's so interesting because we're recording this and, and what we're talking about is sort of generalities when it comes to this topic. But recently, and I mean literally the last couple of weeks, it's been different. And then that is because one side has used this for whatever reason as a reason not to support a, a one, just one particular legislation. And, and yet it, it, it's, it's become more of a hot button issue in the current climate that it hasn't been up until literally a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, um, especially Democrats are having conversations about racial justice around policing um, and they are folding cannabis into that. Now, I actually argue uh, that they're not doing that enough. I, I think if you're a progressive Democrat or you're a Democrat of any stripe or you're a libertarian or whatever you are, um, if you do not connect issues of racial justice to issues of cannabis and especially cannabis legalization, you're not having a complete conversation. You're shortchanging yourself. We are not going to advance issues of racial justice in America when we have the types of racial disparities and arrest rates uh, concentrated throughout the criminal justice system but especially in, in terms of the enforcement of cannabis laws. And so um, it has begun to get wrapped up into a broader debate that, that is uh, a hot button issue. And I think for a lot of cannabis activists, they have been happy for those two parts to be separate for a long time. Um, and understandably so, you know, you wanna get your wins, you wanna make sure that you keep the political peace, but uh, issues of uh, racial justice, equity, social justice are so critical to this movement uh, that it, it's time for 
uh, cannabis advocates to have those uncomfortable conversations. And that's what's happening right now. So I'm really glad you brought that up. That was a question I had down the road, but we'll go a little backwards into your book because we're, we're talking about this, this issue. So you wrote a book um, called Marijuana Short History. The second edition just came out and that's the one I read and I'm, I'm holding right now. You spend a considerable amount of time on this particular issue and you do so by the way, by first apologizing for not covering it more in the first edition, which by the way, I thought was a really incredible thing to do it shouldn't be, but that is a very rare thing for someone to say, I didn't do this well enough and I'm going to make up for it and, and but not only educate myself, but help educate others. That's rare. So props to you for doing that. And since we're already talking about that part, you know, talk a little bit then about what you see coming down uh, the path here as far as this in, in terms of I'm literally looking at chapter 13 of your the second edition of the book. Yeah, so um, as I said, a lot of people are starting to recognize that the, the center of the conversation uh, around cannabis legalization is moving away from a market-driven, uh, economic-driven conversation and more towards a racial justice conversation. And I think that's a long overdue conversation that needed to happen in this policy space. Um, it's happening for a variety of reasons. It was certainly happening before George Floyd's murder, Breonna Taylor's murder, um, and the conversations that have really uh, popped up uh, as a result of those around policing, around um, the, the treatment of Blacks in, in the United States uh, and people of color in general. Uh, those conversations were already happening in the cannabis space uh, in a way that they weren't when Colorado and Washington were legalizing. And so um, that's, that's exciting and it's necessary, but it also means that it is in some ways a new frontier for the broader part of uh, this policy space. I mean, there have definitely been people talking about this for a while, um, but people are learning, they're starting to understand this issue. Um, for me, it was a learning process, talking to a lot of activists, talking to a lot of people of color um, who have been in the trenches dealing with this issue for um, years or decades to understand exactly uh, what both legalization would mean for their communities, but also what post-legalization needs to look like to help deliver to those communities that have literally been raped and pillaged by a criminal justice system that would let someone who looks like me, a white male, um, most likely off the hook if I got caught um, you know, with a joint, but would mean, could mean prison time for um, uh, a guy my age who happens to be black or Latino. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting. It's, I think, a tough conversation happening on the industry side in some areas because industry likes to protect what they have. And uh, let's be frank, the, the, uh, the hyper-majority of cannabis business owners in the United States are stale, male, and pale. And uh, changes to that are threats to that white dominance uh, within the industry. And so these are hard conversations to be had in states that have already legalized, and they're just as hard conversations to have in the states that are looking to legalize. Yeah, I, um, yeah, he, he, you sort of lay it out there, which is the how big of a disparity this is. And, you know, I have that personal experience. My listeners know I've talked about this. When I was 20 years old, 21, I was arrested for paraphernalia, possession, intent to sell, all that kind of stuff. Uh, ended up with a six months, you know, I lost my license, got a bunch of little shit. And then it was expunged because I, you know, I'm a, a guy who comes from means, I'm white, and I was able to get a lawyer and everything was fine. And yet, you know, the same person who is black or brown, that doesn't happen to them. And yet I, and now it's much easier for me to own a marijuana business in 2020 than somebody who is black or brown. This is not an equal conversation whatsoever. No, exactly. And, uh, you know, the, the other side of it is not just uh, business opportunities uh, that exist. That's it. That is a huge part of this, um, for sure. Uh, people who got arrested for a joint and then in some systems just are ineligible to be uh, business license uh, holders. Uh, but also, when you think about what has happened within the communities that are hit hardest, Black and brown communities in America, um, it's not just about... Uh, 
a cannabis arrest. It's what is being done to that community in terms of lost educational opportunities, lost jobs, lost economic opportunities, uh, for a long time, the inability to get student loans. Um, and that, that sort of decay that is institutionalized by the criminal justice system means that a lot of people, um, it's not just an individual problem, but it, because it happens to a lot of people, it happens uh, to essentially vacuum value out of an entire neighborhood or community, um, particularly concentrated within uh, America's cities, but also in suburbs and exurbs as well. Um, that has ongoing effects um, and, and really uh, compounding effects within those communities. And so the solution, yes, is to empower people of color to have the same opportunities to own businesses uh, in the cannabis industry, but it also means to help make up for what the criminal justice system has done to communities more broadly, which is not just um, on the cannabis side, but in terms of real economic development. And one thing I think that your book does excellently is that you, you there is sort of a, um, a, a desire by some to paint this as a recent issue. And your book is just flat out, that is not the case. This goes back a long ways. And that's the thing that I've had guests talk about before, you know, going all the way back to the Opium Act of the you know, 1910s. And, and you really get into Henry Anslinger and, and the horrible man that he is and everything that he's sort of done to our, our history in this country that, that makes it very clear, this is not a recent issue. This has been going on for a long time. Yeah, I think a lot of people think about um, cannabis in terms of a very recent history. Um, they think about, you know, the uh, drug battles that happened in public policy in an America and in America's communities in the 90s, um, coupling things like marijuana, uh, substances like marijuana with crack cocaine and, and others. Um, some people maybe rewind back a bit to the 1960s and see this as a hippie drug and part of an anti-war uh, movement and a counterculture movement. Um, but the reality is uh, a lot of those conversations start with the user. The problem is with the user. The problem is with the scary blacks in New York City in the 90s or those nasty um, white draft dodgers in the 1960s. Where that conversation rarely starts is with uh, the institutions of government. And that is where the marijuana conversation starts. Um, uh, it starts with uh, a federal government uh, looking to uh, deal in, to traffic in anti-immigrant sentiment and then, race, and then equally racist sentiment against American citizens um, and create an entire bureaucratic apparatus and law enforcement structure, not to rid America of a substance that they, um, they seriously felt was a problem, but to rid America of groups of people who they thought was a serious problem. And so it started like you said, with the opium acts um, were initially um, really motivated by racism against Asian immigrants, um, but then cannabis policy really popping up first to vilify um, Mexican immigrants um, and then, uh, then eventually by the 20s and 30s, uh, black Americans and this sort of state enemies list that existed um, was it just broadened and so then beatniks in the 50s and hippies in the 60s and um, for Richard Nixon it was just a long list of people Jews psychologists hippies um, draft dodgers war protesters everyone and and this just expanded and so like I said I think the real shortcoming in a lot of these conversations is to start with the user. The user's not the problem. The state is the problem. And the state has created this system um, to attack people, not because they use um, cannabis, but because of the color of skin of the people using cannabis. Before we get into my follow-up question that, would you mind pausing and telling my listeners where they can follow you, where they can buy your, buy your book, all that kind of stuff? Sure, I appreciate that. Um, my book's available um, on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble. You can get it from the Brookings Institution Press uh, website. It's available in paperback and in ebook form. Uh, the first edition went out of print when the second edition uh, came online. Uh, and so uh, the second edition is actually a lot prettier because my wife, who's a print designer, um, did the cover. Uh, the, the first edition, uh, the cover was a lot more boring. So if you buy it for one thing, buy 
it for the cover. You buy it for two things, buy it for what's between the covers. Um, you can uh, read my work on the Brookings Institution website, that's brookings.edu, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is the same, at John J. Hudak, H-U-D-A-K. Are you ready to take your hemp experience to a whole new level? Because if so, I want to tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Made. Their puff line of smokable flour is unreal. They meticulously source each strain from select partner farms to ensure only the highest quality product in the marketplace. When it comes to the entourage effect, nothing tops strain-specific flour. It delivers the full range of all the amazing effects of CBD. I can tell you because I use it myself. With 0.7 grams of premium full flour inside of each pre-roll, you'll be ready to maximize your personal summit whenever you smoke. So check out Mountain Made today and grab a puff. They're federally compliant with less than 0.3% THC, which means they ship nationwide. All right, I'm going to grab a puff and let's get back to the episode. Then we get into the, the most fascinating thing to me. Uh, I mean, your book is, is the whole thing is incredibly fascinating, but the, the Schaefer Commission, where you have an entire group of people that are trusted say to Richard Nixon, dude, this isn't that big of a deal. And he goes, All right, I'm going to completely ignore all of you and do what I'm going to do anyways. That is the kind of thing where it's like, again, you have all of the evidence that you're blowing this. This is not in any way true. These, these, you know, in this case, it is almost more dog whistle than bullhorn that you have the evidence that this is a lie. And Richard Nixon says, go back to your corner. We're going to throw all of your research out the window. Yeah, so Ray Schaefer was a former Republican governor of Pennsylvania. He was a good party man, a loyal foot soldier, um, a friend of Richard Nixon's. And Nixon puts him in charge of this commission, which takes the name that, the Schaefer Commission, he's the chair. Uh, and the goal, I mean, Nixon's goal, Congress's goal was to just show how addicting uh, cannabis was, how it made people crazy, all the terrible things that it did. And Schaefer comes back and says, listen, it's not. All of your preconceived, no almost all of your preconceived notions are wrong. Don't criminalize this. Treat this as a public health issue. Um, decriminalize cannabis. Don't don't make this a misdemeanor or a felony. Uh, make it a slap on the wrist and deal with it differently. And he issues the report to the president in advance of it becoming public. And Nixon calls him into the Oval Office. And of course, um, we know exactly what happened because Nixon <laughs> bugged his own office and we have the tapes. And um, Nixon just tears into Schaefer and Schaefer stands strong and essentially says, Mr. President, the report stands. I'm not revising it. We're not getting rid of it. So Nixon throws it in a drawer, has a press conference, says that it's been delivered, says he disagrees with everything in it and advises no action to be taken. And of course, no action is taken. But one of the fascinating, sort of the personal fascinating things for me was I'm in my office a year, a year or so after the first edition of Marijuana, A Short History comes out. And my phone rings, it's just a cold call, which normally I don't answer because when you write about, like I said, things like immigration and the presidency, um, <laughs> cold calls rarely are fan mail. Uh, and so, but it's this young kid uh, and he said, hi, I'm so-and-so, um, I go to uh, college at X and I wanted to talk to you about your book. I'm like, okay, I've got a few minutes before my next meeting. And he said, I know you can't tell from my name, but Ray Schaefer was my grandfather. Wow. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, I just wanted to thank you um, for, you know, painting my grandfather in a light that our family understands. Um, and uh, this kid was too young to have known his grandfather, um, Schaefer. Uh, I think Schaefer died in the 80s. And uh, he said, but, um, you know, my family knows about that moment. And that was a really tough moment for my grandfather. I mean, like I said, President Nixon was his friend, plus he's the president, Schaefer was a Republican too. Um, he said, but he was so committed to that report being right. And I'm paraphrasing this kid now, um, but he said, it just means a lot. That part of my grandfather's history doesn't get told all that often, but it's, it's one that our family is really proud of. And, and you know, it, it just shows that this, this is 
such a, a, a meaningful area of policy uh, and that those, uh, those issues that, you know, roaring in the 1970s still leave lasting marks in families. And for Ray Schaefer, this wasn't just some one-off commission that he was like, all right, I'll, uh, I'll take my pay, I'll write this report and, and then we'll dissolve the staff. This is something he, he actually ended up caring deeply about. And, you know, you, you just, you, you think about how different everything would have been if, if Nixon had listened and then not had completely disregarded him and gone the direction he did on the war, of dr war on drugs. Yeah, I mean, it, it was literally beyond Richard Nixon's capacity to do anything else. I, I mean, we have um, uh, statements from staffers of his who, who have said recently that, no, this was explicitly a war on, on black people. This was, this was intended to be racist. Um, and Nixon being as paranoid as he, as he was, um, really didn't allow otherwise. But, you know, one of the, the worst parts about the, Nixon really uh, ramping up the war on drugs is that Nixon was a really smart guy. I think for a lot of people, especially our age, who either weren't aware of Richard Nixon uh, when, he was, when we were younger or weren't, in my case, uh, born when Richard Nixon was in office, um, you know, you you think of him as, oh, the guy who bugged his own office and then got caught. And so he seems to Richard Nixon was a brilliant guy, a United States Senator, a two-term vice president, a, a two-term or a twice-elected president. Um, he understood how government worked. And the, the, the ability to bring that knowledge to the, the battlefield of, against black and brown America is really dangerous. You know, I think one of the things that people who are opposed to President Trump often say is, you know, things can't get worse, this is, this is awful. What I remind them is, A, things can always get worse, but B, imagine the approach that Donald Trump takes to the White House, and now imagine that he understood how government works. It would be a disaster um, for, um, for, for what, what would happen. I mean, that he, does not fully appreciate the size and scope of the federal government and the power of political appointees is in some ways a respite from the policies that he wants to enact. Um, Nixon was the, the worst of both worlds, a smart guy with a really bad set of policy ideas. And he brought them together. And I mean, the war on drugs would not be what it is today without his um, early architecture of a real um, government-wide, uh, organized, coordinated effort. If nothing else, you know, Richard Nixon was incredibly cunning and, and yeah. he knew exactly what he was doing with the with the war on drugs. And I you referenced that as an Ehrlichman quote, right? That's the one that yeah. you're you're talking about, which is as blatant as you get in politics. Yeah, that's right. I mean a different a different era for sure, um, but also the weaponization of the administration of government against uh, explicit groups is just as vile as vile as you can get. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's sort of vile. I, I like that word because vile actors and vile actions are the history of drugs in this country and expli explicitly the history of cannabis in the United States since you know, the early 1900s. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, when uh, we've all seen news articles, we've all had conversations, admittedly uncomfortable conversations with people who you know, get brutalized by police or in, in some cases get, get murdered by police. And we, we've all probably heard or been in a conversation where someone will say, well, he was, well, he was a drug user. You know, it, it, it's never the conversation where someone says, well, uh, you know, that guy got shot by the cops, but, you know, his left turn signal wasn't working. So, you know, he kind of had it coming. But when it comes to drugs generally and marijuana specifically, that is a sort of easy way for some people to cast off, um, you know, institutionalized killing, state-sanctioned killing of people. Um, and this idea that drugs are that severe, that it's that much of anathema to our society that, well, whatever happens to you happens to you if you've got a joint in your pocket. That's not something you're born with, obviously, that viewpoint. That's not something you sit down and think about one day and just come up with. 
that is decades long institutionalized um, information being fed to people to tell people if you do drugs, you are a bad person and people who do drugs are bad people and whatever consequences befall them, um, befalls them. And it's not until a substance begins to affect white America that we start to see it as a public health issue. I think opioids are an exceptional example of that. You know, um, the opioid crisis in the United States has been um, uh, raging for a couple of decades, um, but it wasn't until white, wealthy, and white suburban Americans began to die of overdoses in huge numbers that people were like, this is a public health challenge that we really need to think seriously about. Unfortunately, um, cannabis has not really gone through that same uh, process. Um, we obviously have some pretty significant reforms around it, but there are still these biases that exist. And I think there are biases that exist even among people who maybe went out and voted for ballot initiatives to approve adult use cannabis, but then when these stories pop up, they think, well, you know, should have behaved a little differently and this wouldn't have happened to you. Those things, those things are state sponsored. Those things are state driven. And, and that's a real problem. Yeah. A lot of good points in there. Um, you know, it, 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 so as a person 10 years in recovery, I was actually just asked by a reporter not long ago, if I get, the, the question was, do you get angry when someone pushes back or, you know, basically exactly what you're saying when, when they, you know, Oh, but if you just never chose to use it, I said, I don't get angry. They don't make that choice to feel that way. This is the way our country has approached drug use since before my parents were born, since, since my grandparents were young. It, it, it would, it, it, in the opposite, when someone doesn't feel that way, I'm that much more proud of them because it means they've arrived at this place where they are willing to say, God, I just, I don't know if I agree with this, you know? And, and, and you can't be mad at people for having this in them that has been drilled into us. I mean, Nancy Reagan, you know, dare just say no, all of this was taught in schools. Yeah, and, and breaking that down, I mean, your 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 and and the stigma um, hashtag is is this in in a nutshell, right? You have people who, even if they've shed a lot of it, haven't shed all of it. So, um, you know, I have a friend who is older, um, uh, older than me, and this person has pretty progressive views on cannabis. Um, is an occasional cannabis user. Um, this person still calls it dope, <laughs> smoking dope. And I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure if given the opportunity to vote on a ballot initiative, this person would vote on a uh, vote in favor. But even something that simple is just the nomenclature of it. You know, we get pissed about whether you should call it marijuana or you should call it cannabis. But if you're calling it dope, <laughs> I mean, that's that's a whole other a ballpark. And uh, but like I said, you can shed a lot of it, but that means there's still something there. There's still some stigma there. Uh, and it's a stigma that that person feels about their self, but it's also a stigma that they are going to feel about other people. Uh, and so, uh, like I said, we can make all kinds of progress in this country, but um, that stigma, and I'm sure we're both guilty of it too, right? In, in, in certain moments, just the way you were brought up thinking, like you sort of have to slap your face and get that out of your head sometimes. And, and that, that stuff, like I said, it's institutionalized. That's a perfect point. And, and, and you're right. I mean, I am just as guilty of this, not, to, not in the same ways and maybe to the same level, but we all are. And it's something that I say whenever I speak publicly, which is, you know, until a few years ago when I started, this is my living now, when I envisioned the word addict, I didn't think me, despite the fact that I'm in recovery and that's part of the problem and that needs to, that needs to change. I, you touched on a really important point actually that I wanted to ask about, you know, being a person who has been around drugs for now a couple decades, I've heard the, the, the sort of explanation why you shouldn't call it marijuana, whatever. You lay this out beautifully in your book, why you chose to do so. Would you mind explaining that to my listeners? Sure. So the book is called Marijuana, A Short History. Um, as your listeners can tell from this conversation, I tend to use the word cannabis when I talk about it. Um, 
You know, for me, it's a flip of the coin. Yes, the, the phrase marijuana is dated and its roots are racist. And the reason that the federal government and media outlets and others in the early 1900s called it marijuana was to scare people about Mexican immigrants who were using it. And they spelled, um, it, with a, they spelled it with an H without the, without the J. Yeah, an H instead of a J. Um, and so they wanted to make it sound more exotic. And cannabis, of course, was on the shelves of apothecaries across the United States through most of the 1800s. And that wasn't a scary enough term, um, but marijuana was. And so, um, you know, like I said, in, in talking, I tend to say cannabis, but the reality is most people call it marijuana and they don't call it marijuana because they hate Mexicans. Um, that root um, surely is there. But two things are important. One, marijuana is by far the standard term for it. Um, but two, the people who call it that have no memory of that history uh, or, or have no awareness of the history of that racialized term. And so, you know, we have a lot of products, a lot of substances, a lot of things in our society that have foreign names, right? So my guess is if, you know, you're the, an average American, um, you think of marijuana like you think of tortilla or jalapeno, um, right? It's a um, Spanish sounding word uh, and, you know, tortilla doesn't have racist roots. Um, and so you can, you can call it that and be completely unaware of those roots, but it's, it's the general term. And so, you know, I respect people who use either term um, because people, like I said, even people who oppose cannabis reform, they're not calling it marijuana to, to you know, hate on, on Mexican immigrants. I'm sure they, some of them might hate Mexican immigrants anyways. Um, but uh, it's, it's a distinction that I think is important, particularly in a racial justice debate. But I also think it's a point that um, makes people uh, lose sight of what really matters. Uh, this is going to be a very difficult uh, episode to cut down to the, the podcast length. But be so before we get into the closing questions, one more time, if you wouldn't mind telling my listeners where to follow you and where to buy the book. Sure. Uh, Marijuana, a short history. It's available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, where most books are found. The Brookings Institution Press uh, website also has it. It's available in uh, paperback and as an ebook. Uh, you can follow me. Uh, you can read my work on the Brookings Institution website, brookings.edu, and follow me on Twitter or Instagram. It's the same handle, at John J. Hudak, H-U-D-A-K. So the last two questions I ask every one of my uh, my guests is number one, uh, you know, during this ridiculous time, this very stressful time, what are your self-care habits? What's working for you? So that's number one. And number two is, you know, we've heard uh, about where we can follow you and why we should be following you. Who are some people that you follow that you want to give a shout out to that we should all be reading, watching, um, you know, listening to, whatever the case is? Sure. Um, so uh, the question on self-care habits is um, uh, an important one. I mean, uh, here in D.C., they have been taking the lockdown really seriously. And so uh, my wife and I have been holed up in our house um, for 160-something <laughs> days right now and a lot more to come. Uh, and so what I found is uh, I've really gotten back into meditation uh, and uh, into yoga, but more so meditation. And that... Uh, uh, that's been uh, pretty helpful uh, for me just to deal with stress, deal with, um, you know, the feeling of being literally trapped in. Um, I will say that uh, combining, D.C. is a, a legal uh, jurisdiction, uh, combining cannabis with meditation uh, sometimes has been very effective. Other times it's been a little distracting for me. Um, but uh, those things are good. Trying to turn the news off as much as possible, given my job, that's not uh, that's not always easy. Uh, but what I found is that uh, turning the news off and having virtual happy hours with friends I haven't talked to in a long time uh, has been uh, has been absolutely, uh, absolutely great. Uh, your second question was on people to follow uh, in uh, in this space, you know, uh, one of the uh, one of the organizations, uh, or I'm sorry, one of the areas in which 
this is really starting to ramp up is around, uh, as I said, cannabis equity, but what's happening at the state level. Uh, and so I've been looking at some people who have been working on minority issues in and out of government. And so uh, uh, Shailene Title from Massachusetts, uh, she's been the uh, most vocal individual on the Massachusetts Cannabis Commission uh, to talk about that state getting it right. And uh, she has a presence on social media, but looking at places like the Boston Globe and stuff like that, uh, to me, she is um, uh, a person and the type of person that every legal state needs one of, the person constantly sounding the alarm and holding elected officials accountable to the promises uh, that they've made. And uh, I think if every state had someone like Shalene, uh, she would be, th those states would be in a much better position as a result of it. Uh, well, thank you so much for being here. You, you sort of reminded me there at the end that we didn't even get into how states are actually, you know, proceeding. I mean, there's so much in this space to talk about, but I guess that means that my listeners are going to have to go buy your book. I like that. As, as, as many of them as possible, I encourage it. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast and then thought, oh, man, I just, I don't even know where to begin? Well, I have the perfect answer for you. It's Anchor. They have all the tools you need to get started right away, all in one spot. You can do it from your phone or your computer. They'll even distribute for you so you don't have to go looking for places to get your podcast out. But the best part is it's all free. That's right. You can sign up today without any hassle at all. You can even start making money right from the beginning. It's everything you need in a podcast in one place. So check it out today. Go to anchor.fm or download the free Anchor app to get started. All right, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you learned something from John. Look, I've said this now multiple times, but please go buy his book. He is, he's such a knowledgeable guy. Brookings is doing such incredible work. And the book is really good, too. It's not just interesting. It's also a really good read. That's something that I really love about Brookings is that a lot of their work is both fun to read and interesting. Um, um, you know, I said this last episode, I'll say it again today. I'm finishing Know Your Price, which is by Andre Perry, another Brookings, just incredible, incredible guy. All of their books are wonderful. Go check it out. And I hope you are inspired by S. Uh, she's, she's great, and her work is so important. We're going to do the card first, and today, once again, reading it will be my father, Steve Schiffman, and here it is. This is from the Reasons Why You Matter card set. Nothing is impossible. The word itself says, I'm possible. Audrey Hepburn. Thank you for that, Dad. That was, that was great. It was a lot of fun recording him and my mom doing these. We, we've got um, four more, I think, something like that. And uh, <laughs> it, was a lot, it was a lot of fun. You know, it's so important right now to take a moment for yourself. I was uh, recording a shout-out that'll drop later in the fall, uh, just yesterday, and, and I asked the, the young woman who I've known for a long time how her relationship was going during COVID, and she said, we haven't killed each other, we're not at each other's throats, and so for that, we're, we're pretty thankful. And, and it really, she was right, like, it made me realize that the, the sort of the bar for having a good relationship during COVID has really dropped because we're with this person 24-7. You know, my wife and I, the other day, were just trying to figure out the last time we spent a night apart, and the answer was January. January. This is being recorded in September, the end of September, almost October. So taking a moment for yourself is so important right now because we're constantly around our significant others, our kids if we have them, our pets. So that is your good egg for today. Whether it's reading, whether it's taking a bath, whether it's taking a moment for some self-love, whether it's just going for a walk, take a moment 
for yourself. Do something to make yourself smile. You know, it doesn't have to be spending money. It doesn't have to be doing anything extravagant. Just do something to make yourself smile. Hopefully, you'll, you you find a moment during this podcast to do that. I, I would love to know if there was something that made you smile during the podcast. That would make me smile. If you need a laugh, go check out the interview I did a couple weeks ago with my buddy Spark Tabor of Cookies for Breakfast, where we talked about middle school dances. That uh, is very funny, and I've actually heard from a couple people who are fans of this show who finally went and listened to Cookies for Breakfast and said that they love that interview, so go check that out. But do something for yourself. And at the end of the day, show your empathy, be vulnerable, spread your love, and choose your struggle. Y'all know him as the superstar stand-up and blockbuster actor, but did you know that Kevin Hart is also a New York Times bestselling author? And he's back with his second book, The Decision, Overcoming Today's BS for Tomorrow's Success. And you can get it today on Audible. Just for signing up, they're going to give you two free audiobooks and a select free Audible original to get started. So go to the link in my show notes and sign up for Audible today.